Take your Bibles and turn over to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 3. A couple of Sundays ago, we looked at verses 1 through 16. We actually crossed over into chapter 3 and looked at verses 1 through 16, and we learned about Paul's unique and specific calling to minister to the Ephesians by basically revealing to them the mystery of Christ, which really is the gospel, but maybe better defined, it is the fact that Gentiles have been made um, fellow heirs and members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ uh, through the gospel. That's kind of the mystery of Christ. That's what we learned that he had gone out to proclaim, especially to these Ephesians. Um, In the next section, Paul continues to lay out his calling and ministry, as well as God's wisdom and plan. So he just gives more detail about God's wisdom and plan, as well as more detail about his specific calling uh, and ministry. Our text will be verses 7 through 13. It's kind of a big piece to bite off, and there's some pretty serious doctrine in it, but I'm trusting that we can deal with it in a uh, timely manner today and not leave anything out. Of course, lots will be left out because it's the Word of God and uh, I'm a finite human being, Um, but we're going to give it our best shot. Uh, I'm going to read it out loud. You can follow along and then we'll pray one more time and then we'll get to work. Again, chapter 3, verse 7 to 13. Paul says, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places." This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Father God, we ask that you would open our hearts and minds to the truth now, that you would help to put away with any and all distraction, uh, that you would make our hearts the fertile ground for the truth, that it might be planted and grow and cultivate into godliness, into righteousness, into sanctification, into Christ-likeness. And so uh, we pray that you would minister to us today through the very Word of God, and we understand that it's not me the pastor that's actually ministering to anyone or preaching the word, that it is actually you, Christ. When the word is faithfully preached, it is you who are preaching. And so we want to listen and be attentive and be changed and challenged by the truth. And so have your way here today. Be glorified. And uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Let's pick it up at verse 7. We'll start at verse 7. This actual text, this section is is one that we can actually break down verse by verse. Um, There's multiple themes and things running here. And so we can actually deal with it 
pretty much line by line. Uh, It says again, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. I want you to notice several things from this line, but the first thing that I want you to notice is how Paul referred to himself as a minister of the gospel. What is a minister or what is a minister of the gospel? Well, it's really simple. A minister of the gospel is one who serves people or serves others with the gospel. I mean, it's really that plain and simple. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones defined a minister of the gospel as a herald of the glad tidings and a preacher of the gospel. And really, if you think about Paul, if you know anything about him, if you've studied Scripture uh, to some degree, looked at the book of Acts or so, you'll realize very quickly that's exactly who he is and and what he did. Uh, As a minister of the gospel, he went into cities and towns and communities, and what did he do? He heralded the glad tidings of God by preaching the good news about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. Notice also how Paul was not the slightest bit, we can tell from the text, he wasn't the slightest bit confused about his calling and message, as some are in the church today. I don't want to be mean or bash, but there's an epidemic in the church today. Ministers today pretty much preach all sorts of different things. They handle all sorts of topics, and from self-help to, you know, to morality, social issues, they're constantly dealing with politics. Unfortunately, some guys spend most of their time preaching about politics and the evils that exist in the federal government and these sorts of things. And really, sadly, men who do this have, in effect, forgotten their calling to be ministers of the gospel, to be heralds of the glad tidings. I'm reminded of of someone in in particular who I believe started out very, very good and very well and then kind of ended really, really poorly, I think, and that's Dr. D. James Kennedy. Have any of you heard of the Coral Ridge Hour that used to be on television? You've seen that? Remember the guy would stand up in that pulpit that was raised up way high, tons of people out there, pipe organ behind him, and, you know, and he had glasses. And I remember watching that program, and, and quite honestly, I was pretty mesmerized by some of his sermons and stuff, but one of the things that D. James Kennedy did was he, you know, he started out his ministry really good, and he formed or founded what's called Evangelism Explosion, which is basically a, uh, it's a methodology that, you know, that Christians are, basically they're taught how to share the gospel with unbelievers. And it's really not a bad system. It's not a bad methodology, um, so, you know, in the early years, he, he preached his guts out, and he did these things, and he formed Evangelism Explosion, but during his later years, he turned his pulpit into a, a political platform where he railed against immorality and the government. How many of you actually saw that transition or have ever watched a program where you saw him sit there and talk about these, you know, and, 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 and you know, if, if a guy wants to preach about abortion and homosexuality, those are moral issues. They're not political issues. They've been politicized. So I understand if somebody wants to address those issues from the pulpit. But a lot of times what these guys do is they stray from those sorts of issues and they start talking, you know, they become like a pundit. And, and, and they start, you know, I don't know. It's just, it's just a bloody mess. And this is kind of what he did. 
And I thought it was really tragic to sit here and, and to watch all these people sit for an hour in front of him while he basically bantered and just talked about, you know, politics and maybe this politician or that politician or this evil or that good thing. The fact of the matter is that ministers of the gospel have one message, the gospel. That's what's supposed to happen. That's, that's, that's supposed to be guys like my. That's our reality. That's, that's what we're supposed to stick to. You know, gospel ministers have one message. It's the gospel. They're not to give in to the temptation to become mouthpieces for a million other messages. Because there are a trillion other messages. I mean, we, we could talk about things till the cows come home. There's a, we would never run out of subject matter. There are things to always talk about. In marriage improvement, immorality, these things we can talk about till the cows come home. Can we not? But the gospel minister has a unique and specified calling to proclaim the gospel. That's what he needs to stick to. And I don't know what happened. I, I, maybe people have reduced the gospel down to you know, just, just this simple thing, and they feel like there's not enough meat there to actually keep talking about it. I don't know what happens or why people do that. Maybe what happens is guys like I look out you know, into society, and we watch the news at times, and we th- see the things that people are dealing with, and we feel like we need to address all of these issues and deal with all of these topics and subjects. And Meanwhile, the gospel is put away to the side and and so often, some of these guys rarely even mention Jesus, which is really, really terrible. And so we see right here, right off the bat, he was a minister of the gospel, minister and of the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister. And so he's, he's not confused about his ministry or about his calling or about his message. And, and every minister needs to learn from Paul's example here. Now, I want you to notice some of the key phrases he used. I was made a minister, right? Paul didn't make himself a minister of the gospel. He was made a minister of the gospel by God. Uh, It's very important that we understand that ministry is not a profession. It's not a profession. It is a divine calling. Okay, and I know some would argue with that, but it is a divine calling. He was made a minister. And he's not talking about his school of Phariseeism that trained him or any of these things. He's talking about being made by God. It is a divine calling. And when someone says something like, you know, well, I'm going to seminary so, so I can enter the ministry, what we should respond with is, but have you been called by God to go into the ministry? Because you see, there is a difference. Can you tell that God's calling to ministry is upon your life. Uh, Too many in the church today think of ministry as a profession or as a job. You know, I want to go and uh, that's the job I want to do. Well, don't do it for the money. (laughs) It's not, it's just, we we should never think of it as, well, you know, I'm, I'm considering going into electrical engineering or maybe pastoral ministry. Huh? And, and I think that because the church kind of views the ministry today as a profession, as a job, it, it's no wonder that, that most of today's ministry coming out of the church is impotent and powerless. We have uncalled men doing jobs rather than called men doing ministry. 
This is a problem in the church today. A huge problem. We don't have gospel ministers in the church today. We have activity directors. We have life coaches. We have good communicators. We have pep talkers. We have managers. We have storytellers. We even have actors. Some of them are really good at it. I have to admit, T.D. Jakes is very entertaining to watch, but he has about as much depth as where I buried my puppy that died a few years ago, about a foot under. That was a weird illustration. He just, he's fun to watch because you got to, you know, and it's entertaining. But it's entertainment. We have managers, we have cruise ship directors today. You know, most pastors, especially in big churches, are allotted about six to seven hours each week to put together a sermon. And if you've ever visited some, even some of the churches in our own community, when they're preaching, you can tell because there's really nothing there. There's no substance. Because they're so darn busy with doing everything else. Running over here and doing this and getting this set up and getting this event going. and It's unreal. You know, it's kind of a silly example, but in the Old Testament, men didn't say things like, I think I'd like to become a prophet and go into prophecy. That sounds like a great profession, right? And you know, there's so many similarities between preaching and prophecy. In fact, in the New Testament, prophecy and preaching are basically the same thing. The Old Testament prophets were what? Called by God? Sent by God? Read Isaiah 6. Read Jonah chapter 1. Some of these guys were reluctant when they got the calling. I don't know if I want to go into that. That seems like a bad thing because the people are hostile. It is. Shut up. Go do it. Okay. And we must realize that all true gospel ministers are made by God just as Paul had been made by God for that task. That was his calling and he was made to do it. Now this does not negate training Okay, the calling doesn't negate training. And that's where the confusion comes in. But what if you go to seminary? Does that mean you're not called? No, it probably means you're called and you need training. Training is important. I think every minister of the gospel needs training, whether he get it at a seminary, and you better pick a good one because there's a whole lot of them that aren't worth your time, or he gets it in a local church with good godly men around. I mean, there's different ways to get training, but you need to be trained. You need to learn how to administer the word and proclaim the word and study the word and hermeneutics and all these weird technical phrases and terms that have to do with the ministry. You need to learn those things. You need to look at language and all these things. Study interpretation. These are important things. It's about, when you go to seminary, it's about helping you flesh out your calling and sharpen it and get the skills that you need to do it in a way that glorifies God and is effective. So I'm not against training. I think training's great. I think some guys need more training than others. But we must remember that local churches and seminaries cannot make men ministers. They just can't. Well, we've got a training program, and we can put you through it, and you'll be a pastor by the time it's done. You'll be a minister of the gospel. Really? I kind of wanted to work at hot dog on a stick. Probably not called to do it if that's how you feel. 
What happens is church leaders like me see a little bit of talent, a little bit of potential. We latch on to those people, and then we want to take them and put them through something to get them to do something. And what we need to do is pray more and ask more critical questions to find out if people are actually called and qualified by God to do this. There are some characteristics and things that will be present. I don't want to go into all that. Uh, Another phrase that we see here, according to the gift of God's grace. Salvation is a gift of God's grace, right? Ephesians 2, I mean, none of us would argue with that. Salvation is a gift of God's grace. But guess what else is? Gospel ministry. He says, according to the gift of God's grace, that means that ministry is a gift of God's grace, just as salvation is. When God calls men to salvation, some of them also get called to gospel ministry. Now, being called to gospel ministry should not be confused with being called to be a witness. All believers are called to be a witness for Christ. Matthew 28, it's indisputable. But not all believers are called to be gospel ministers. I.e., pastors, elders, preachers, teachers, evangelists. There's a difference between being a witness and being a minister of the gospel. Now, the key thing to recognize this phrase is that gospel ministry is a gift of God's grace. It's a gift of God's grace. And I said, most of us understand that salvation is a gift of God's grace, but we don't often think of ministry as a gift of God's grace. But it is. A little further along in Ephesians 4, 7, 11, and 12, Paul wrote this. He wrote about this in more detail. He said, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. What we see here is that Christ appropriates in His grace the gift of gospel ministry, and He gives it to certain people for the purpose of them ministering to others. So gospel ministry is a gift of God's grace. Gospel, and and think of it like this too, gospel ministers are a gift of God's grace to local churches. In fact, taking it further, direct application here, the elders of this church, the men who are called by God and appointed by God and appointed by this church are a grace gift from God to you. See, we think of salvation as a grace gift. We think of ministry now in that that meaning, but also the very men whom God has called and equipped and appointed to do it are also a gift to you. So I say enjoy them. Seek their wisdom. Seek their counsel. Slap them on the back. Give them a hug. Take take them to lunch once in a while. Third phrase. He says, which was given me by the working." Of his power by the working of his power see the gifts of preaching and teaching and the ministry itself were given to Paul by the working of God's supernatural power the very power God used to raise Paul to new life right that resurrection that dunamis dynamite power the very power that he used to raise Paul to new life was also employed 
to raise him to the high task of preaching the gospel, to equip him for that. And Paul's ministry evidenced the power of God there. His ministry was characterized by fruit, right? Conversions, people got saved when he preached the gospel. People were grown and sanctified spiritually. They were matured in their new faith. Those are fruits. Those are evidences of God's power being present in Paul's ministry. It's very important that we realize that that, people getting converted and people being matured and grown in their faith was not due to Paul's technique, was not due to Paul's style, was not due to Paul's charisma, was not due to Paul's preaching prowess. Didn't have anything to do with what he could do. It had to do with the very power of God being exerted and given and displayed through the ministry. God not only empowers a man for ministry, he also works his power through that man's ministry. The ministry of a man who is truly called by God will be marked by fruit because of God's power working in and through it. Now the fruit might not appear in mass or come very quickly, but it will begin to show at some point. I think of great, you know, evangelical missionaries like William Carey and, you know, Adoniram Judson. They experienced this stuff. I mean, these guys went into foreign countries and labored in the gospel, like at first, when they first started doing it, six or seven years each before seeing one person converted to Christ. How many ministers today would endure that kind of resistance to the gospel and fruitlessness in their minds is what they're seeing and stay there and be committed and do that? I don't think a lot of them would. Six or seven years straight before seeing one person converted to Christ. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you have the Apostle Peter who labored in the gospel for an hour or two and saw 3,000 converted. I want to be a part of that ministry. That's what I want. This one guy, I want the 3,000. That's the way we think. You have to understand that all three ministries, that of the Apostle Peter, Carey, and Judson, all were given to those men to the working of God's power and empowered by God and fruitful, even though the fruit was delayed in one of them. They were fruitful. Gospel ministry is given by the working of God's power through grace, and ministers are made. Get that stuff down. Let's look at verse 8. He says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Uh, What do we see here? This is an amazing statement of Paul's humility. It's not a false humility. It's not a cooked up humility. This is real humility. This, this, This verse is dripping with it. You know, Paul was formerly a persecutor of the church, a hater of the Lord Jesus. But on the Damascus Road, the Lord Jesus appeared to him and saved him and called him to gospel ministry. During his ministry, Paul remained somewhat dumbfounded by the Lord's grace and mercy. It was hard for him to get his mind around how, 
you know, the Lord could shed His grace upon him and call him to such a task. Paul never forgot about who he was before he was converted. He was reminded all the time of what he had done before Christ. All of the religion in the world to no avail, persecuting the church, hating Christ. He remembered all of that. He wasn't, you know, drugged down to the you know, depths of despair because of his past. He had Jesus Christ. But he did reflect often upon who he was. And then he thought about who he is at that moment, and it was just overwhelming for this guy. I think it's crazy that, you know, you have somebody like Paul who accomplished so much for Christ, is the greatest missionary to ever live. And even at this point when he's writing this letter, he thinks of himself as a pauper. He thinks of himself as a poor man. And even more mind-blowing, he was a pauper in his mind, he was a poor man in his mind who had been tasked with preaching what? The unsearchable riches of Christ to Gentiles, non-Jews. I'm telling you, that pretty much blew his mind. He, he was mesmerized, mystified by his own salvation, knowing who he is. Why would you love me, God? And then doubly worse for him, why would you call me to do such a weighty, amazing task? This, this verse just displays his humility. Every gospel minister should be characterized by this same humility. I like what Cameron says often. He, you know, he'll get up here in the, in the pulpit and preach on a Sunday, and we all love his preaching and love him, and he'll say you know, things like, I, I, you know, I'm going to do this task that I'm unworthy to do. See, that's the right attitude for the person who is saved and appointed by grace. It's not just that every minister, every gospel minister should be characterized by the same kind of humility. Every believer ought to be characterized by it. Why me? You know what we do? We gripe and complain about others. Why wouldn't God save that person? Or why does he elect these ones and, and leave these ones reprobate and blah, blah, blah? What we ought to say is stop saying that junk and say, why me? See, when we say those things and we argue those things, we think too highly of ourselves. We think that we're worthy of something. And I'm telling you right now, I know me, and I'm, I've been growing in my relationship with God and learning about Him, and I'm, I'm really coming to realize more and more about myself as I learn about God and His majesty and holiness and beauty and awesomeness, and then I realize who I am. I, I don't say, why not this person or why not that person? I say, are you crazy? Did you know what you were doing when you saved me, God? I'm a disaster. I'm weak. I'm feeble. I sin. And then you're going to tell me that you've called me and appointed me to preach the gospel? I think you're a lunatic. And he knows exactly what he's doing because he chooses the weak and the least, the low, to shame the wise. Paul had that humility, and it wasn't fake. Now, what are the unsearchable riches of Christ here? Well, first of all, they're unsearchable. <laughs> Does that mean we can't know anything about them? No, but it means you can't know everything about them. What are the unsearchable riches of Christ? Four of them are listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. I had it read earlier. I had a larger section read, but 
Cheryl hammered that verse. I'll just read it again. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. There they are. Now that's not all of them, but that's four of them. Let's look at each briefly. Number one, wisdom from God. That is an unsearchable rich uh, diamond, if you will, of Christ. Wisdom from God. Wisdom from God is the knowledge of who God is and who we are. The Lord Jesus came to reveal both to us, right? Christ shows us that God is holy, perfect, sinless, just, and merciful. Christ shows us that we are unholy, imperfect, sinful, and in need of mercy. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, The Lord Jesus teaches us about God, but that makes us conscious of our sinfulness. We feel that we dare not approach such a God. I am in agony. I am in crisis because I may die at any moment and have to stand before God. How can a sinful man stand before God? See, that's part of the revelation of Christ. Part of the, the richness of Christ is that he comes and he reveals who God is because he is God incarnate and he reveals who we are. You need a savior. You need to repent. These sorts of things. Secondly, righteousness. God demands righteousness from people, you and I. Demands it. But we are sinners and do not have righteousness. We are separated from God because of this and will face his wrath and justice at some point. Something isn't done. But the Lord Jesus earned the righteousness we need through perfect obedience to God's law and by grace, through faith, believing in his person and work, we can be made righteous and become reconciled to God. Because of the righteousness of Christ, we can stand in the presence of God uncondemned and unashamed. So that's another one of the riches of Christ. Wisdom from God, righteousness, three, sanctification. In order to have fellowship with God, we must be made holy. Why? Because God is holy. And unholy people like you and I cannot enter into his presence or relationship with him. We cannot experience fellowship with him or any of those things. Sanctification means to be made holy and set apart for God. And this is also something that the Lord Jesus does for us. When he died on the cross, he shed his blood. And his blood washes away our sins, cleanses us of all unrighteousness, and makes us Holy sets us apart, sanctifies us once and for all. His blood literally sanctifies us and sets us apart for God. Now, this doesn't have anything to do with progressive sanctification. I'm not going to get into that. But there is a sanctification that happens when you get saved, and you are made holy. God sees you that way, and you are set apart. And that's exactly what Paul is sort of pointing to here with this rich of Christ. Number four, redemption Unbelievers belong to the world and follow the course of the devil, Satan. But Christ has purchased out of the world and out of the dominion of the devil a people for himself. We call it the church. This transaction, this purchasing of these people out of the world is called redemption. Redemption means like transaction in a way. It means purchase. 
Christians are actually referred to in the Scripture as what? The redeemed. Those who have been bought. Those who have been delivered from the world. Purchased out of the world. Now there is also a broader redemption coming known as full or total redemption where the Lord Jesus will return to judge the world and redeem all things for the glory of God, but that's later. But there is a redemption that has a purchasing that has taken place. When Christ came and died on the cross, he purchased with his own blood this group of people, and it's a massive group according to Revelation 7-9. Big group with all sorts of different people. So the wisdom of God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption belong to the unsearchable riches of Christ. And each one is like a multifaceted diamond which can never be fully examined or understood by human beings or by angels. Not fully understood or comprehended by anything that is created, essentially. Only the mind of God understands what He has created in this sense. We are finite he is infinite. Now some say, well, the minute you die and go to heaven, you know all things. No, you don't. You'll know Christ in a way. You'll know Christ physically face to face as opposed to knowing him through faith. That's what you'll know, Christ more fully, it says in Scripture. But there's nothing in Scripture that says that all of a sudden you become the keeper of all wisdom and knowledge. It's not true. Even in a glorified body, you're not going to be able to get your mind around all that God, all that he is. And all that he's done. And the wonderful thing is, is that those who are in Christ will have the blessed opportunity to learn about these riches for all eternity. It's like there's a constant unfolding of these things before us as we're in a glorified state in heaven. It's going to be awesome. I think it's cool that seminary continues in some sense. When we go off to be with the Lord, we keep learning and the facets and the richness of His grace in these things. There's, there's more learning that happens. And fortunately, it's, you know, ignorance in these things are conquered for us, so we don't have to say, I can't figure that one out. But I think the unfolding of God's wisdom happens throughout eternity. Yes, your God is that big and amazing. He is. Those who are in Christ have the opportunity to learn about these things for all eternity. They are multifaceted. They are, on this side of glory, unsearchable. On that side, they're still unsearchable to some degree. So by grace, Paul was called to preach these things to the Ephesians, the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to others throughout the region, and even to us through the Scripture. How cool is that, right? That we're reading his sermons his sermons live on in the pages of Holy Writ. How cool is that? Most of my sermons are forgotten by Tuesday. Let's look at my me, too. People are like, hey, man, would you preach on Sunday? Uh, Ephesians? Look at verse 9. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things. Paul basically said that when he preaches the gospel, he is bringing to light the things which were hidden, in, hidden by God in the Messiah. Things like God's wisdom, right? The ingrafting of Gentiles into the covenant community and righteousness, the imputation of, of Messiah's righteousness to sinners and sanctification, being set apart by Messiah's blood and, and redemption, the full and final payment made by Messiah. You need to understand these are 
all New Testament concepts. There were only types and shadows of these sorts of things in the Old Testament. Old Testament saints did not understand these things. They knew Messiah was coming, these kinds of things, but they did not have the kind of access to the knowledge that we have. They were hidden. And when the gospel is faithfully preached, it it has to do with unfolding these things and making them known to listeners. What did Paul mean by for everyone? You see that there? And to bring to light for everyone. What does he mean by for everyone? Is he suggesting that every person will hear the gospel and be illuminated? Was he promoting a kind of what some think is good and is kind of popular today? Was he promoting a sort of universalism here that everyone will have this free access and everyone will be illuminated? And No, 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 that's not at all what he was saying. Everyone is translated pas, P-A-S, pas in Greek, and it means every kind of person. Every kind Everyone means every kind. The same adjective is used in 2 Corinthians 5.15 where it says Christ died for all. Literally every person who has ever lived lives now and will live and die later. Is that what it means when it says that he died for all? No, it's pass, every kind. And in 1 Timothy 4.10 And this is one that people really get tripped on where it says that the living God is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. I want to give you a quick explanation of that text. And first of all, you need to realize that Savior of all, all is pas, meaning every kind. So get that first. Savior here has to do with two things. It has to do with temporal salvation that's physical deliverance and it has to do with spiritual salvation so it's twofold god is the savior of all kinds of people in a temporal sense in a physical sense what do you mean by that well does god not rescue unbelievers and believers from physical peril and death all the time of course he does he doesn't just rescue in a temporal sense believers he deliver, delivers unbelievers from death and cancer and illness and calamity all the time why because of common grace because of his providence it's what he has chosen to do it's what he predestined to do there's nothing wrong with that so he is the savior of all people in a temporal sense because he rescues all kinds of people from calamity all the time in accordance with his purposes. And yet God is also a savior or the savior of all kinds of people in a spiritual sense, isn't he? Paul described them here. He said, especially those who believe. Those who believe experience more than temporal deliverance they experience spiritual deliverance. God's work of saving every kind of person in the temporal sense and every kind of person in the spiritual sense makes Him the Savior of all. But we confuse that. We say because it says Savior of all, that means that He intends to save every person spiritually. Not true. 
He is the Savior of all because he saves all kinds in a temporal way at times and because he saves all kinds in a spiritual sense. That's how he becomes the Savior of all. But don't confuse it and think that it only has to do with the spiritual dimension here. It does not. It has to do with temporal as well. I like to think of it like this. You have a carload of people that are driving. They're driving down the road. Somebody T-bones them. Every one of them should have been killed. But by God's providence and design, none of them are killed. He, what does he become now in the temporal sense? The Savior of all those people in that car. And yet two in that car believe in Jesus Christ. God has become the Savior of the whole carload in a temporal sense, but only the Savior of two in that car in the spiritual sense. This is the way that it works, friends. That's the way you need to think of it. So he is the Savior of all temporally, but he is the spiritual, uh, he is the spiritual Savior of some. We call them the elect. And I could unfold every verse that people use to argue against God's sovereignty and salvation for you, and I just did one, but I can deal with all of them because I've spent the last seven years of my life studying these so I could be doctrinally correct and share the truth. And and what happens when we realize that our salvation is that unique and that specified? Does it create, what about others? No, it should create insane worship and humility. And again, we need to go back to the default mode of saying, why would he save any at all? Why would he save two in that car spiritually? Not Why did he save any even physically? Why do we think that God owes us something? I'm convinced that the only thing he owes me is the torments of hell because I realize my depravity and who I am. And yet by grace, that verse that Mari and I send back and forth to each other, but God... He's done something for some of us, and it's pretty darn amazing. And it's not six of us. It's a massive, massive church. It's wonderful. He is the Savior of all, temporally, all kinds, temporally, and all kinds, spiritually. Mark that down and begin to study that subject because it will blow your mind. You'll start to learn about the intricacy of your own salvation. You'll start to appreciate what God's done for you more and more. But if it's a universal thing that's just offered to people, what value is in that? I hope somebody believes in Jesus. Wow. Really? That's what we think. What Paul had in mind in verse 9 is that his task was to bring to light the mystery of God in Christ through the gospel to every kind of person. Jew, Gentile, Ephesian, Colossian, Roman, Corinthian, Philippian, Galatian, Thessalonica, and all the people that he wrote to. When he says every, everyone, he means everyone, every type of person that I would have the ability to influence. Greek, Scythian, barbarian, the things that he wrote about. It's every kind. Now look at verse 10. He says, now this is, this is incredible, this verse, incredible, blows me away. In fact, somebody could probably spend 100 years preaching on this verse. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. What on earth is he talking about? Now listen, due to the benefits that we enjoy in our salvation, we've been talking about them in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, really nail them down, all those spiritual blessings and things. Due to the benefits that we enjoy in our salvation, 
forgiveness, peace with God, membership in the covenant community, all of that wonderful stuff, it is easy to believe that the Lord's primary purpose in saving his people is to bless us. We readily view salvation as man-centered, and we often regard our well-being as our creator's chief concern. Certainly, we must not discount the Lord's genuine love for His people, for the Scripture tells us that God loves us with an everlasting love. Still, as God's Word stresses the preeminence of His glory, even when He redeemed His old covenant people, we know His glory is also His chief goal when He saves us. It is no surprise then that Paul holds the same God-centered view of salvation as the rest of Scripture. Verse 10 is one of the clearest verses in all of Paul's writings telling us that, that, uh, that our redemption is ultimately for the purpose of making the glory of God known to his creation. That's what we're looking at. Here we see that the creation of the church through the preaching of the gospel is designed to proclaim what? The manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The Greek word translated manifold was often used in the first century to describe the intricately embroidered patterns found on cloaks worn by the wealthy. And divine wisdom is incredibly rich, even colorful, similar to the patterns found on these cloaks. Yet God's glory is even richer. And evidencing it to other creatures displays his magnificence more fully. Now the heavenly rulers and authorities here are angelic beings. And Paul may have been thinking more specifically of those angelic beings gone bad. Satan and the demons. In Colossians 2.15, Paul mentions rulers and authorities, and in that particular text, it is a reference to Satan and the demons. Now, I want you to think about who Satan is for a moment. Just ponder who he is. Don't think of a little pitchfork and a little tail with a point on it, because that's Dante's view. That's cartoons. That's not, he's actually, it says in Scripture, pretty striking in his appearance. He's beautiful. That's why he's so good at deceiving people. But I want you to think about who he is, what he's about. Satan is called the father of lies. He's called the chief murderer. Satan is a divider. Satan is a relationship killer. Satan is a racist. Satan is the ultimate distorter of truth and God's laws. Satan is the enemy of God. And guess what? He's the enemy of man. How does the creation of the church show forth God's manifold, intricate, right, wisdom and glory to these evil creatures? How does it work? It is shown through the fellowship between Christian Jews and Christian Gentiles as we conclude from Paul's emphasis on the unity of Jew and Gentile in Christ Jesus and the end of the Mosaic Law as a dividing wall between, between these two peoples. 
in witnessing such fellowship between these two different types of group of people with two different backgrounds, and I'm talking about Jew and Gentile because Christ came to save every kind, right? And there's Jews that get saved and there's non-Jews that get saved. There's all different types. In witnessing the fellowship between these two different people groups, and you couldn't get any more opposite Jew to Gentile. You're talking about Jews thinking of the Gentiles as dogs. You're thinking of the Gentiles thinking of Jews as religious fanatics. These two groups did not get along at all until Christ. So in witnessing such fellowship in Christ, in the church, the enemy sees that his power to incite sin and direct people to use God's law sinfully to separate them from others in self-righteousness is not absolute. A unified, a unified, faithful church is one more reminder to the devil of his defeat. And living in peace and purity with other believers glorifies God in manifesting his victory over evil. That's weighty. That the church and the unity and love that it shares displays to the devil his defeat. Because all he does is divide and destroy. He kills marriages. He kills everything. And he is glorified because of that. And when the church sticks together and is unified and loves one another and fights for peace and fights for truth, it sends a clear message to that dirty devil and his demons, you have been defeated. Your plan to divide and destroy all is not going to happen. And God is glorified in this. Our rulers and authorities in the heavenly places might also be a reference to the good angels. 1 Peter 1.12 shows that these angels are somewhat mystified by God's wisdom, right? It's manifold wisdom. It's beyond their comprehension. They can get some of it, but not all of it. It's so intricate and vast especially in the gospel. And what do these angels do? Because they're kind of mystified by God's wisdom in the gospel, they never tire, it says, in that particular text, 1 Peter 1.12, they never tire of looking into it. Why do they never tire of looking into it? Because they can't get their own minds, which are superior to ours, around all of it. So God could be using the church to display his manifold wisdom and glory to them. It could be to the devil and the demons, those particular fallen angels, and it could be to the holy angels. It could be to both. But I think the first interpretation is much stronger because Paul has been pointing to Jewish believers, Gentile believers, peace, unity, oneness, and the covenant community ever since chapter 2, verse 11 in Ephesians. I mean, our context shows that it has to do with the relationship between Jews and Gentiles and then the dismissal of Satan's plan to destroy all, and he's a failed leader that's just incredible it's so deep and so rich i could barely get my mind around it as i was trying to write this i had to write it and rewrite it a thousand times i didn't i couldn't get my mind around the manifold wisdom of god none of us should be able to fully get our mind around it but we should not miss the purpose of the church in displaying the manifold wisdom to refute the devil and the demons and to give a broad and awesome gospel testimony to a lost world that there is hope in christ now think about all of this if God uses the unity of the church to communicate to the devil and the demons that they have been defeated, what happens when believers war with each other and divide? The message of Satan's defeat is confused. 
Worse than that, we actually begin to communicate to Satan that he is victorious. You're succeeding in my relationships. We're destroying each other in the church or outside of the church in our marriages. What are we communicating to Satan? You're winning. You're victorious. We're not communicating to him that God is victorious. When we battle one another in the church, we distort the manifold wisdom of God and glorify Satan. We need to remember then I, I hope it comes as a shock to all of us because I'm as guilty as anyone in this room at times. We need to remember that God does not share his glory with others at all, especially Satan. Isaiah 48, 11. Think of Ananias and Sapphira. Who were they? Early believers and members of the church. What did they do? They lied to the Holy Spirit about their selling of property and giving to the church. They, they fudged the numbers. They messed around. They lied to the Holy Spirit. What did they do by lying? They glorified the father of lies, Satan. They acted as, instead of the Holy Spirit or God the Father being their father, they acted like, well, Satan is because we're doing his bidding. And I believe if they had been permitted to continue with their lies and deception, they would have created division in the church way early on. But what happened to them? God struck them down one after the other. Why? Because God does not share His glory with others, especially Satan, and He takes internal threats against the church very, very seriously. Well, He would not do that today. You sure? What guarantee that you have that he wouldn't? You want to test him? I'm telling you, we need to apply the principle of this truth to our relationships, especially our marriages. When a Christian couple works together for peace and stays together through thick and thin, it communicates defeat to the devil and the demons. Who do you think's behind all the divorces in this country? People or the devil? Who do you think is in who do you think it is that's destroying marriage in this country by confusing it and redefining it? People that want what they want or the devil? You see, when we stick together and love one another and sacrifice and put away our petty differences, work through reconciliation. When we do what God calls us to do in all of our relationships, especially our marriage, when we do that and we stick together and work it out, when we commit ourselves to the glory of God and to the, the benefit of our family and to the love of this person, we said, I do. when we do that, it sends a clear message to the devil that you're not going to get this marriage and you're not going to get all of them and you haven't defeated the church because Jesus is building his church and the gates of Hades, your gates shall not prevail against it. But you see, when we give in and divide and separate and give up, we glorify Satan, screw up the manifold wisdom of God, at least on this side of glory. It's horrible. <clears throat> this is tough. Look at our last verses, 11 to 13. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you which is your glory 
Paul basically said, I've paraphrased his little paragraph here, the things that I have described to you so far, chapters 1, 2, and 3, have taken place in accordance with God's eternal purpose and plan. They have happened just as they were predestined to happen. So don't lose heart because of what has happened to me. Don't lose heart because of my imprisonment and suffering. Our faith, he reminds them, our faith in Christ gives us access, boldness, and confidence. This is what he said. What Paul was actually doing here is setting up for prayer. He did this back in chapter 1. In verses 1 through 14, Paul hit the Ephesians with a barrage of weighty, amazing doctrines. In verses 15 to 22, he paused to pray that the Holy Spirit would illuminate their hearts with the knowledge of Christ, all the things that he was proclaiming to them. In chapter 2, verse 1, to chapter 3, verse 10, he hit them with another barrage of weighty, amazing doctrines. And then in our text, verses 11 to 13, he paused to set up for prayer, which comes in verses 14 to 22. See, Paul just gets out and he starts running with this doctrine and it's amazing and he's jogging a marathon and he realizes, I better pray that they get it. And he stops. This time, we're going to read in the following weeks, Lord willing, that he prays for the Holy Spirit to grant them spiritual strength to comprehend what he's writing about, the knowledge of Christ. Lastly, why did Paul tell them not to lose heart? You see it there? You see, they knew Paul was suffering for the sake of Christ, and that hurt them. When we hear of other believers who are being persecuted, it hurts us. I think of Saeed Abedini suffering in that prison in Iran. That strikes my heart. I think of all the Christians who have been beheaded by ISIS. That crushes me. I think of someone here locally who is being persecuted or suffering in some way. It hurts. We don't like to hear about our brothers and sisters in Christ being mistreated or killed, do we? If you do, you've got a problem. I actually hate it. I don't want any brother or sister to, to suffer at the hands of others. I don't. Funny thing is, I'm okay with me doing it. You know, Go ahead, bring it. But I don't want it to happen to my brother Rich. I don't want it to happen to my sister Cheryl or my own sons or Bruce, my brother there, Robin, Lauren. You see, this is how they felt. They knew Paul was suffering. He was their brother. He was their own apostle in a way, and it just crushed him. He's writing these amazing things to us, and here he is languishing in prison, chained to a guard. We have this mobility and liberty and freedom. We can walk around and do as we want, and we can preach the gospel. And here's our brother who's in a dank, nasty little house. You see, the last four words of verse 13 show that there was a purpose for Paul's suffering. What does it say? Which is your glory. In the midst of Paul's suffering, God was using him to write this letter which unpacks the Ephesians' salvation and sonship and glory as God's beloved children. Paul said, in effect, don't lose heart because it is for your own honor. It is for your own good. It is for your own benefit that I am suffering. Now I want you to realize something right now. God wastes nothing. 
Nothing. If you're going through something, if you're suffering, there is a purpose for it. God might be working through it to help others. That's what he was doing here with Paul, wasn't he? God might be working through it to teach you something. God might be working through it to sanctify you, to mature you, to make you more like Christ. Don't lose heart. I want you to remember three things as I close. Remember that as believers, all of our suffering, pain, and difficulty will one day vanish. Gone. Remember that. Remember that we have an inheritance. As believers, we have an inheritance coming to us which is truly beyond reality. No eye has ever seen. That's what it says about our inheritance. It's just beyond. It is that spectacular. I think it's categorized in the unsearchable riches of Christ. It's coming The pain and difficulty and struggle and sickness and strife, whatever it is, it's going to vanish one day. The inheritance is coming to you. Remember these things. And remember that everlasting glory in the presence of our God and King awaits us. Don't lose heart. Paul said, something to the effect of these momentary struggles and persecutions and difficulties they don't you can't even compare them to the glory that awaits us don't lose heart push forward our faith in Christ gives us boldness perseverance keep putting your feet down and taking steps forward in Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you're not struggling through something right now. Maybe things are pretty smooth right now. Well, when it comes, remember this. Remember Ephesians. Remember chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians, who you are.